When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, this week's guest is JT Woodruff, rhythm guitarist and lead vocalist for the Dayton, Ohio rock band Hawthorne Heights. Together, we unravel the story of the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the song Ohio is for Lovers, taken from their 2004 debut album, The Silence in Black and White. JT was about as humble and funny as it gets while explaining that the band was about as green as they come when they recorded this song. They had never made a record before, yet were convinced that they knew best, which didn't sit well at the time with producer Sean O'Keefe. I mentioned to JT that it's this struggle, this tension, that sometimes yields the most amazing results. And case in point, Ohio is for Lovers is the song that the band is most known for. A song that, according to JT, didn't even have lyrics to until the night before he recorded the vocal. Talk about last minute. Oh, and the inspiration behind the lyrics is heartwarming for the fact that JT is still together with the same person the track was written about all those years ago. So for all this and a couple mentions of Iron Maiden, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. JT. Good morning. How are you, Chris? Great to see you. You as well. This is uh, this is not rock star time right now. Hey, man. I, I live my life by the nine to five credo. <laughs> I, I like I like it. You know, I I gotta tell you, I in researching this episode, it's just amazing to me that your debut album, The Silence in Black and White, is almost. 20 years old. You guys still seem like a new band to me. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the youthful enthusiasm because I wish my, uh, you know, I wish my back and my knees could, uh, could agree with you, but, <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it, one of those reasons is, is like Less Than Jake was a band that we grew up listening to. One of the first bands that I saw at my very first Warp Tour. So like all of this influence spun out really quickly. So we probably we we still feel like younger brothers to you, 
You know what I mean? Like we're, we're <laughs> yes. like on the generation directly below yours, which I think is awesome. It is. It's very cool. It, it, it's more for me as the years go by. I'm sure you can, you can attest. Where'd the time go? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the time went on the road. You know, yeah. I mean, you woke up one day, you were on one tour, then you wake up the next day and you're like, holy shit, we've been on 50 tours. Where am I today? Absolutely. Well, the band was formed in 2001 in good old Dayton, Ohio, of all places. And, you know, I, I got to ask because, you know, I've been to Dayton. I know it's, uh, you know, basically just like tropical. Yeah, very tropical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just very, uh, you know, good old suburban USA. And, and what was it like growing up there? And how that how do you feel that seeped into your uh, your songwriting? I actually grew up in West Virginia. And I moved to Dayton in 2000. So my story is not really rooted here, but I formed a band with a bunch of guys that were kind of playing in, in other bands. They just liked my vocals. And uh, that's kind of where the history is. But you know, I've lived here for the past, I don't know, 24 years now or 23 years. And yeah. like, so most of my adult life is in Dayton, Ohio. So yeah, how did you guys get hooked up with producer Sean O'Keefe? Was that uh, was that through Victory Records? Uh, yeah, it, it actually was. Tony at Victory Records suggested Sean. Uh, we were already familiar with him because he recorded one of our favorite albums at the time, Take This to the, Your Grave by Fall Out Boy. Spittlefield, Remember Right Now, we were really excited about that album. And Punchline Action you know, guys that we played tons of shows with, and we just thought that that was such a step up because it's a band that we were very familiar with. We knew them, and we knew their career up until that point, and we just thought that maybe Sean O'Keefe was the difference maker because we thought Action was such a step up from their previous stuff. Uh, now, I don't know if that is accurate. I've never talked to them about it, but I just absolutely love that record. So it was, it just seemed easy, a match made in heaven. And it seemed to, what we thought to put us into the big time. We're totally green. We totally don't know what we're doing. You know, when you look back on it, we're getting through this and we're super excited about it. And it just seems like he's constantly killing the vibe by like being on our backs about stuff that we feel don't matter. And by the way, the things that we feel don't matter are the lead vocal to Ohio is for lovers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you when you look back on this, it's it's hilarious. But, you know, like and, you know, this is a, one of our first time ever being truly challenged mm -hmm. by an, by another person in the room regarding our art. Yeah. So like, you know, there's there's fighting back and forth, nothing like wild or anything like that. But it's definitely like a poison pill in the room situation. So. You know, we're into this argument and, you know, he's talking about how long the editing's taking and stuff like that. And we're like, we don't know anything about this. What's this Pro Tools? <laughs> just edit, just, just edit it, dog, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and he's like, he said something to the effect of, and your lead singer doesn't even have the vocals written to this song. And I actually did write the vocals the night before to the song because of an argument that I had with, with Nikki FM, you know, so. We have this argument, relationship writes itself. I'm really inspired that night. I'm really pissed off. I write all the lyrics. I know exactly what, where they're going in the song, what the melody is. I write it all within a half hour. Mm -hmm. The night before, this very timely argument. You know, we're not like, I didn't write it the night before 
because we were getting ready to get to it. I just happened to write it the night before. So he came at me really hot and I had the absolute perfect ammunition for it. So he's yell he's yelling. He's like, you don't even have anything. And I was like, yes, I do. I have the whole song written. <laughs> and he was like, why haven't I heard it? And I was like, because I wrote it last night. <laughs> and so, so he, he's like, no, you didn't. You know what I mean? Now it's like, I'm just, it's like I'm being a smart ass. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I haven't showed it to you because I didn't want to show it to you, but that, that's not what was happening. I just happened to write it the night before. So he's getting real pissed and he goes, all right, sing it for me. And he hits the space bar on the chorus and boom. And I say, I can't make it on my own because my heart is in Ohio. And he stops it and he goes, that's fucking great. Wow. Like that literally happened. No, no joke whatsoever. No smoke and mirrors. I got to tell listeners, I've been smiling ear to ear for the last like five minutes as you're telling the story because it's just there's there's so many little things first of all I, I can see your point and i can see his point you know i've tried to explain to people before you know you have a a group of friends a team uh, a camaraderie and some outside person comes in out of nowhere hot saying hey let's make these changes let's do this 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 and this you're like whoa whoa hold your horses there pal you know so there's all this stuff going on but i can also hear the I can hear where you guys were at as musicians, where you were at intellectually in the sense that this song is kind of all over the place in a great way. Just the arrangements kind of odd. The, the, the first verse does not resemble the second verse at all. These are what are sometimes referred to as mistakes by younger songwriters. And here it's become your signature song. That is so cool. I think that a lot of those things kind of threw him for a loop. Because he's used to like, like I said, the stuff that he recorded before, very in the pop in the pop punk realm. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of that stuff has a very strict structure to it. You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, everything's the same. You change up the lyrics, you switch a, you know, a little melody trick or something like that. But for lack of a better terms, it's supposed to be really pleasant to listen to and really want you get in the chorus and stuff like that. And, you know, we're a bunch of guys. We have three guitars. Mm -hmm. So we're like, we're trying to make this shit sound cool. We're not worried. <laughs> we're not worried about songwriting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're like, we're worried about, does this sound cool? Is there enough guitar? And by the way, we're huge Iron Maiden fans. Mm -hmm. So we want to put a harmony on everything. Oh, uh, of course. And he, uh, we want a three-part harmony on every single part. And he is pissed. <laughs> he's, he's worried he's, about capturing a studio recording and, and your guys mindset at this point is how can we get kids to bounce off the walls of the vfw hall? absolutely that's absolutely it. <laughs> absolutely so we're you know we're throwing all these ideas out and he's like no no absolutely not why would you ever harmonize there and i was like because that's what we do and this is what our sound is and that's that's why people are going to like us mm -hmm. that's what's going to set us apart so he would just like always make comments like that. And he did not understand screaming. Mm -hmm. So like we're taking these pop punk songs that he's kind of used to. And we're mixing in these weird ass guitar harmonies. And we're not repeating anything. <laughs> like we're, we're doing very variations of things. Yeah. But the only thing that kind of repeats is the chorus. And, you know, so like I, I get it now. Back then, I was like, "Nah, these parts are just sick, man." Yeah, you just don't. You just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, hopefully we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive into the song now. But hopefully, uh, you know, I got some of the parts right. I'm, I'm I'm interested to see if you're agreeing with what I'm calling the chorus and, and everything in this song. Because again, this is a really interesting arrangement. The song is four minutes and five seconds. The intro is eight bars total. It starts out with this clean arpeggiated picked guitar panned off left for four bars. On the fifth bar, there's a few hits on the ride cymbal, and again on the seventh bar before bar eight, which the band is in for verse one. Hey there, I know it's hard to feel like I don't care at all where you are and how you feel with these lights off as these wheels keep rolling on and on and on and on and on. Slow things down or speed them up. Not enough or way too much. And on and on and on. How are you when I'm gone? So that conversation that I said that this song was stemming from with Nikki FM, this is almost verbatim what I talked to her about. You know, the wheels rolling on and on. That is my part of the conversation where I'm saying, look, this is my first two weeks gone. And I'm in the studio that Nirvana recorded at trying to record my dream album. And this is the beginning of this. So if this goes right, I'm going to be on tour on and on and on. And I'm going to be in a new city every single night. And Mm -hmm. I need you to understand that if that is happening, then that means that everything that you've seen me grind for has has come true. Yeah. And as soon as she heard it in that way, because, you know, like before the band got signed, I was back in community college. I was about ready to give up music back in community college because I saw a future with her. So I was going to become a teacher. I was going to finish college. I was working as an assistant manager at a convenience store 40 hours a week that allowed me to take any day that I had a show off. So I kept that job and it gave me health insurance. And then I was working 30 hours a week uh, delivering pizzas to try and just stockpile my money just to try and start my life. So I was working 60 to 70 hours a week and going to college. And the guys, we were writing songs on the weekend and then they would rehearse a little bit while I was working at the gas station and they would bring me the songs on the CD and I would write the lyrics like while I was working. So that was my process leading up to this. And she totally got it. She was like, I've seen you trying to make positive changes in your life, trying to move your life forward for us. And now you got it. So I cannot be a roadblock to this. And, you know, that's basically what that first verse is about. It's about like, if this is going to go well, I'm going to be gone. And I, I need you to understand that. And we need to like, be able to work this way to work from being gone. And, you know, this is like the 
beginning of cell phones. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't as it, like now, now you're like, you could get a hold of wh- yeah. whoever you're, you're going to FaceTime are. you from Russia. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like you remember that whole era before you had any of that stuff, calling on pay phones and stuff oh, like that. So horrible. like you felt a lot more isolated than you would feel now, mm-hmm, even though, sure. you know, you do want the people that you love to be in the room with you. Now you can you can simulate that a lot more than you could back then. So, yeah, that's that's basically what that whole first verse is. It's about me trying to explain to her all. And by the way, let me ask about you for a second. How are you when I'm gone? That's what that line means. That Mm -hmm. line means this is what's happening. This is why I'm gone. Oh, wait. Now let me think about you for a second, because a lot of songs are all from one perspective. It's either you broke my heart or I broke your heart. This is about coming together and building compromise in a relationship. I know that seems really weird and unsexy and uncool. I think it's awesome because you were communicating through song. And it just goes to me to show the foresight for both of you as being young people, the maturity that you had to, you're still together. The proof's in the pudding there. And, you know, another takeaway from this whole thing here, I got to say you know, sometimes the struggle produces results. You know, think if if, if producer Sean O'Keefe wasn't the way he was, that he didn't make you angry. You said, I'll show you. I'm going to go write these lyrics. We might not be talking right now. I totally agree. What if I wasn't challenged by him this entire time? Yeah. What if, what if I wasn't challenged by my girlfriend the entire time? Right. What if it wasn't freezing cold? What if the pressure of this situation that the band was in didn't drive us to fight for who we were? Yeah. You know, like, what could this album have been if we didn't fight to get those harmonies in there and to fight to scream where we wanted to scream, not where he wanted us to scream? Yes. Like, it would have been an entirely different album. Yeah, for sure. Well, bunch of stuff here in verse one. Uh, the drums, the bass, and that guitar panned off left from the top is still there. The guitar on the right is playing a palm-muted eighth note riff. Uh, on the line, and again, these are just things I noticed in this song. It's strange. On the, I'm calling it the fourth line, where you are and how you feel. On that line, a guitar panned off right comes in louder than the palm muted guitar with a new part with slightly overdriven like tremolo right there. On the line, keep rolling on and on. And on and on and on is a backing vocal. It's almost centered, but it's slightly panned right, which I got to ask, the next one that happens, the next on and on, it's panned completely left. There's no center at all. How did that come about? And did Sean O'Keefe mix the record too? Yes, Sean O'Keefe mixed the record. Okay, so he would have done that. He would have done that. That would have been a studio trick for him. As far as um, the guitars, like I said, we were a three-guitar band, Mm -hmm. so... We would fit that in there as much as we could. And he cut out a lot of my parts because I'm the lead singer. So the the stuff that I'm playing is a lot of it is unnecessary and cool sounding. So we we have like just basically converted that to like palm muting and, and stuff like that. So like when you hear that tremolo guitar part come in, that was our guitar player, Micah. He is the one in the the only one in the band that had no background in punk, emo, screamo, ska, hardcore, metal, anything like that. 
he was just a a dude that played guitar that grew up listening to all the bands that we listened to, like the mass bands, like Green Day would have been the biggest punk band he's ever heard of. Yeah. I mean, he didn't he didn't know about no effects. He didn't know about any of the cool shit. He only knew surface level stuff like Nirvana, Pumpkin, stuff like that. So but huge classic rock guy. So he brought in those kind of like weirdo influences like a tremolo where us, we would be like, hell no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. That's weird. That's weird. That sounds like Pink Floyd. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So like, so he was really cool in that regard. He had to like go through some roads to get to it because you'd be like, that's too far. That's too whack. But this is really cool. So, you know, like it took a little bit of time because it wasn't like a guy that grew up listening to Descendants and you were like, shit, that that rips. That's exactly what I wanted to sound like. It was like it just it took a little time to like to nuance it in there, but came up with some really unique sounding parts in really unique places. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you have our other guitar player, Casey, who's playing like the the kind of arpeggiated riff and stuff like that. And me, I'm just chugging along with my little palm muted i would play palm muted eighth notes on single string a whole lot instead of doing just regular power chords and that is kind of how i would not fight with everything instead of putting both the notes of the power chord in there i would be doing the single note of the top string of it yeah makes it stick out well i gotta tell you again you know (laughs) some of the songs i broke down on this show some of the biggest band songs have been arrangements like this where it's like on paper it doesn't make sense this first verse never happens again these sounds never happen again for the second verse but yet it's so cool that's what makes this song the next part i gotta ask jt is the next part the chorus or the pre-chorus because i'm calling it the pre-chorus very very important question (laughs) for us the whole song is the chorus That's how unhinged we were as songwriters. So we never said at any moment, like I said, we wrote the vocals last. I wrote the vocals to this song last. I was never like, where is the chorus? I just wrote to what was there. Yeah, that makes so much sense now because this part does sound like a chorus, but I'm going to call it a pre-chorus and I'll tell you why. We call it Chorus A and Chorus B, by the way. And and if you're writing in Hawthorne Heights lingo, we have learned from this moment. We now understand what an A chorus and a B chorus is, and that has become part of our signature sound. But from the outside perspective, from a totally different style of songwriter perspective, I want to hear what Chris has to say about it. I love it. I love it. Well, the lyric is, and I can't make it on my own. And uh, there's a backing vocal call and response, and I can't make it on my own that follows that. And then because my heart is in Ohio, and I think that's obvious to what that's saying lyrically there, uh, this part, the drums, I, I love how this part and the next part that I'm calling the chorus, how they flip. And let me explain. So the drums go to just kick and snare on the first and third times of this pre-chorus. Plays a straight beat on the second and fourth time. Big distorted stereo guitars are in alternating between big power chords and octaves. On the line, my own on the first line, that first scream you get in the song. It's kind of in stereo, left and right. I'll tell you, though, in the left speaker, that first scream, 
it sounds like Casey is 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 his throat's coming out of <laughs> of of, uh, <laughs> of his body. It's just like this. Oh my gosh, it's almost a painful sound panned off to the left, but it just it, it's great. The clean double vocal happens on the call and response line, and I can't make it on my own. And then again, out of nowhere on the line because my heart is in Ohio, a clean arpeggiated guitar part happens on this line, and then. The reason I'm calling this a pre-chorus, we have a line drawn in the sand with this like 808 sub boom that that happens. (laughs) So that to me is the line in the sand. That's why that's not the chorus. Yep. I totally agree with you. And a lot of people were doing that sub hit back then and we couldn't wait to fit it in (laughs) to a song. Um, So we did it. And you'll notice there's a very subtle hand clap in this chorus that we really wanted to fit in. I can't make it on my own. Smack, smack. Uh, For no reason whatsoever. And this is where very green songwriting comes in, where we're just putting stuff in there, where we're like, dude, that would be sick if we did this. We never once said, hey, should we do this going into the chorus? We never once used that word chorus <laughs> yeah. while, writing, while writing this song. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, that sub boom takes us into chorus one. Uh, and now, backing off your idea here, uh, you had talked about a chorus A, a chorus B. I'm calling it chorus, uh, the first part, the chorus, and the second part here, the post chorus. So we're kind of speaking the same language, just different words. Yeah. So cut my wrists and black my eyes. And the scream vocal comes in, cut my wrists and black my eyes. So I can fall asleep tonight or die because you kill me. And on the because you kill me, you get the lead vocal and the screamed vocal there. The drums flip from the pre-chorus, what they're doing. So it's a straight beat now on the first and third times. And there's like a breakdown tom part on the second and fourth times. Halfway through here, there's another really great arpeggiated guitar part that joins us just for a second there. Uh, And then on the last line, the drums go halftime as a setup for post-chorus one, which we'll get to in a moment. But what's happening here lyrically? So... Like I was telling you before, you know, we're very introspective. We're having a conversation. I'm asking her, how are you when I'm gone? Then I get right into it. I'm mad. I'm I'm using very stark metaphors. Yes. This line will follow us for the rest of our lives. So cut my wrist and black my eyes. Very controversial to one end of the spectrum. Very artistic and poetic to the other end of the spectrum. You know, people who understand similes, metaphors, using songwriting devices to create uh, hyperbole. And, you know, that's what it's about. And I'm thinking the night before when we're like heavy into this argument, because this is like two in the morning. Mm -hmm. I forgot to bring up that part. You know, like this is like after the session. I'd also like to throw in that I don't drink or smoke or use recreational drugs. So I am lucid at all times i got nothing to just i can't just take pills to fall asleep or you know there's no melatonin back then you know it's all <laughs> it's all natural i'm just i'm stuck in my thoughts 
and I just want to go to sleep because we got to start again at 9 a.m. You know what I mean? And like, I'm just trying to get through it. So cut my wrist and black my eyes means what do I got to do to stop this conversation and just go to sleep? Yeah. Um, and that's where the to fall asleep tonight or die because you kill me. You know, and that line, because you kill me, it kind of sounds stronger than it is, but it's more like, man, you're killing me. Yeah. But when you add the screaming and everything in there, it makes it seem really emo and really dark. <laughs> mm -hmm. You were dealing with raw emotion as, as a young person, full of, of, at this point, there's some rage there, um, and, and you're sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, like you said, there's, no, there's nothing to make you go to sleep. You're laying there at night. This stuff's still, still screaming in your head. Yeah, and you know, nothing to calm you down, nothing to take the edge off, so to speak. Uh, but also, you know, like back then we didn't really use words like anxiety, like nobody diagnosed anybody with like with that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was just like like now you'd be like, oh, you, you have anxiety. You're stressed out. Mm -hmm. You're like, you know, you have all this pressure and everything. and It's it's getting to you like now you can look back at that and you can say, yeah, man, we we made good over some wild circumstances and some crazy situations because you're an adult and you can look back on it and you know you probably wouldn't be as stressed out if you could just compartmentalize but at this point i'm like man just knock me the fuck out <laughs> you know what i mean yeah punch me get me out of here i just need to take a break here yeah so that that's where i'm coming from it's not as uh you know morose and macabre as it sounds but that's what i like about it it's the juxtaposition of those wild phrases with a melody that soars over kind of a pop punk chorus. Yeah, and I, I just love things like because you kill me. It doesn't mean it literally it just means like you're killing me, you know? And yeah. and I, I love things like that in lyrics. Well, one last thing about the chorus I do want to mention. We get the first harmonies in the song on the first line. So cut my wrists and black my eyes. And we also get a harmony so I can fall asleep tonight, not on or die right after. That was left alone. And I, I love the positioning of that. Post-chorus. You kill me. You know you do. You know you do. You kill me well. You like it too, and I can tell. You'll never stop until my final breath is gone. And we get harmonies on the first three lines, except for that last line, which again, I don't think a harmony should have been there. My final breath is gone. That's a personal lyric uh, that you were singing there. The drums stay halftime during this section here with the bass and stereo guitars playing these staccato chugging rhythms before we get into verse two. But uh, lyrically, what are you trying to, uh, to say here? This is kind of like part of that argument where like, you're just trying to say, don't manipulate the situation. Let's just end the argument. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're trying to, when you're fighting with somebody and you're just saying whatever to try and win the argument, mm -hmm. you know, like it's dragging on because you just, one side will not just give it up. And uh, that's what that line means. You'll never stop until my final breath is gone. You know, like, what do I got to say here? I get it. I understand. I cannot come home right now. Mm -hmm. I get it. I'm here. What can we do now to get through this is basically what I'm saying right there. How can we move on from right now to correct this without me snapping my fingers 
and I'm immediately home working 70 hours a week again. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. So that's basically what I'm trying to say at that moment. I, we can't talk about this anymore. What can we do? Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with JT after a few words from our sponsors. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Pass to Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come baby come and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. And now, back to the show. Well, I had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but if, if you had 100 songs, JT, on the wall over here, and you had to pick one song that verse one doesn't resemble verse two at all, it would probably be this song. It is just, <laughs> here we are. At, at first, I'm listening to this song, and I'm, I'm dissecting it going, this is almost sounds like a bridge, but no, no, this isn't a bridge. This is a verse. Spare me just three last words. I love you is all she heard. I'll wait for you, but I can't wait forever. Spare me just Spare me just three last words. I love you is all she heard. I'll wait for you, but I can't wait forever. Spare me just three last words. I love you is all she heard. I'll wait for you, but I can't wait forever. It is repeated there. That's my first question. Why was that lyric repeated? And did anybody, producer Sean O'Keefe, anybody in the band say, hey, maybe we should have something else there? Yeah, I think that we were kind of split on that because the idea was to have me sing it and then it be screamed a bit more. I think that maybe Sean or somebody else stepped in and said, we can't just have a back half of a screaming verse. So that's where the backup vocal comes in and then the scream takes over. 
So like that, that is definitely weirdo songwriting. And I think that we were just trying to come to terms right there because I wanted to, I wanted it to go into a heavier portion, you know, like to try and prove how heavy our band actually is. Mm -hmm. But I lost that argument. I know it's a happy loss. I'll take the L on that one. I'll tell you, I stopped a long time ago trying to analyze or, or, or figure out why people like a song off my first record, which was essentially a demo. You know, why do they gravitate to that? And, and I, I, I can come to the conclusion it's just it's that raw emotion that we throw out there. And that's why I love this track so much. I love that it's one of your signature songs, <laughs> but you could just tell you guys are trying to find your footing here. You know, it, you'd probably be hard pressed to write a verse uh, one and two that sounded so different now, but there's a lot going on here. Dynamically, the band gets a bit quieter on this verse. Drum, bass, and stereo guitars are playing eighth note palm mutes. A guitar panned off left is playing the palm mutes kind of up an octave. And then you get a harmony on Spare Me Just. And on three last words, there's a scream. I love you is all she heard. On that second line, you get a harmony. That harmony is really great. The notes there are haunting. It's like a creepy tone on that particular harmony. Was that all done in the studio? It had to have been because you didn't have the song written. And how were you coming up with, was it on the fly coming up with those harmony parts? Because that harmony is great. Yeah, a lot of this was on the fly, which is crazy to think. Yeah. That, that that's how we were doing it. But, um, you know, at, at this point in the band, I was writing all the screaming parts. And Casey was screaming the parts. He just did, didn't quite have the confidence because this is our first record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he did. He didn't have the confidence in in where to put them. He had the confidence in how to put them. So that was kind of my mastermind to like figure out where they go. And Matt, our bass player, who does all the harmonies, he's just always been a really good singer with my voice. So he comes up with them really quickly and. Uh, I think that he had that almost immediately after I got the lead vocal done. Like he, like some of that stuff was such breakneck speed that if I'm doing the vocal, he's sitting there listening to me do the vocal, creating the harmony. So when it's his turn, maybe two hours later, he's got to hit that harmony. Mm. I think that's why we all work really easy now because we didn't know what we were doing then and we got to do it under such wild circumstances <laughs> yeah. that we that we can do it so quickly because we were constantly working on the fly which is totally weird and totally unique but it's it's allowed us to like be able to get things done really quickly because we know how we wanted to sound and stuff like that it's a lot of times why you go back to that first initial idea on your voice memo from a song. You're like, that melody, that's it. Why am I trying to change it? It, 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 was, yeah. per it was perfect. Well, uh, the back half here, uh, the last two lines, I'll wait for you, and but I can't wait forever. That sounds like it might have been the compromise because we get screams on both of those lines. And on the back half of verse two here, there is yet another distorted guitar that comes in on the second half playing a cool cool uh, sporadic guitar riff right there and again this is yep. it's just like you're flying by the seat of your pants hey we got three guitars let's put another <laughs> part here absolutely and that that really is what it was it was like hey it's my turn to shine let me get a little something <laughs> in there you know yeah. what i mean so yeah. like since we don't have like an actual demo of this song 
I would I would love to hear what we were trying to do. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I would love to hear what we cut out. Like, yeah. Because we're at that point, we are hard lined three guitars. Album two, we understand that it needs to be whittled down a little bit and tastefully applied. But here we're all trying to get in there, baby. We want all three of them in there, all (laughs) three at all times. We all got interesting stuff to play. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, you got five five pups in the litter. They're all hungry. They want to eat now. (laughs) Yes, and we all want to eat at the same time. At the same, yeah, exactly. Well, pre-chorus two is the same lyric, and I can't make it on my own, and I can't make it on my own because my heart is in Ohio. Same stuff's going on here. That clean double vocal uh, comes in the second time, the backing vocal. We get that sub boom, that 808 or whatever that is, to take us into chorus two. Everything's going on here. The screams are in the same spot. Interestingly enough, because you kill me, the last line, I swear that the screaming backing vocal is slightly louder than chorus one. And when we get to it later, it's the loudest it is through the whole song. Do you recall if that was intentional with the mix? Yeah, it definitely was. I think that's one of the things that Sean really shined on was making moments smaller early on. So that way they're bigger and more impactful later on in the song. And that's something that we that we all had to learn, Yeah, you know, because we don't come from a production background. So like we want to go 100 percent of the time at all times. That's where your, your producer or a really good engineer is like, this is cool, but we got to hold this out of chorus one. So that way it makes an impact in chorus two or we got to change up a melody in chorus three or mix this part louder and more aggressive in chorus three. And uh, yeah, that, that was all Sean. Like I, I know that we all had like ideas of how things should go, but he was great in that regard. He's, you know, like all of his records, that's kind of one of his signatures is bringing stuff in and amplifying it and making it build as the song goes along. And I think that's probably another reason why we, we all didn't get along at, at that moment was because he's used to doing things his way. He's made records. This is our first record and we're just trying to cut a road here. You know, we're trying to find the Hawthorne Heights way to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have our process yet. Also screaming and singing was just then happening like for real, you know, like when you first made your, your first great really punk ska record, it wasn't happening. There was no blueprint for you to do it. Mm-hmm. You just knew how you wanted it to sound within your band. So you had to create what ska punk sounded like. And you had to figure out how Less Than Jake did that. We're That's what we're doing for Emo and Screamo at that exact moment in our lives. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that was out yet. Yeah. You had the, the used. You had a, a Taking Back Sunday record, AFI, and thursday that was really about it you know i'm not including the 
the 90s real screamo stuff and the sure. 90s real emo stuff but a know, lot like, of that was just either emo or screamo it hadn't kind of it hadn't kind of combined yet exactly you know i would say the closest and one of the biggest influences for me and why i wanted to divert a little bit was i hate myself I don't know how much you you guys listen to those, you know, from the same area as you. Yeah. Uh, only only around a fraction in time, but like they were doing something entirely different. Yeah, it's the that's the Marburger Brothers. Yes, singing yeah. and screaming. I feel like if they had five more years, they probably would have got to what they were really trying to achieve, which is way closer than what we were doing. Do you know what I mean? So like, just that glimmer. There really is a folklore surrounding that band as the years go. I just see them coming up more and more and people, you know, talking about yeah. I hate myself. That's that's really cool you brought that up. Well, post-chorus two is interesting. It's a double post-chorus. The first half, there's no harmonies here like there was the other time. And on the second half, we get the harmonies on the first three lines. My final breath is gone. That's just you. But... We get the screams here. We get the screams, you kill me well, that are sporadically throughout that part. Uh, and then we get into uh, one of the most interesting parts of the song, because again, we completely change the whole mood, the whole atmosphere. It's a 16 bar musical bridge interlude. The back eight bars have vocals. Uh, the clean guitar is panned off left. The bass and drums are doing a really broke down section for eight bars. So cut my wrists and black my eyes. That vocal is panned off right. The second line, my final breath is gone so I can fall asleep tonight. And my final breath is gone is like a main lead vocal center. And then that last line, so I can fall asleep tonight, the vocal is panned off to the left. When the vocals come in, the drums go to a straight beat, and we are joined by a shaker that comes in here. It's the only time that I hear the shaker in the song for those second half uh, eight bars. You get the screams in here as well. You kill me well that happen in there. And what's going on lyrically here? We said some of the same things except that last line, so I can fall asleep tonight. This bridge, it was kind of like deconstructed in the studio now that we knew what we had. 
you know, now that you're hearing the vocals, you're hearing the narrative of the song, you're understanding what you need to say. And the musically, it's really rooted in that intro riff, except it's instead of picked out, it's more like kind of strummed, but kind of not strummed. And we're really trying to break everything down dynamically to get away from it. Because before, like that chorus, the let's call it the B part of the chorus, mm-hmm. the back half of the chorus, yeah, uh, the rhythmic portion, that's a breakdown. We yeah. were writing that as a breakdown, as a hardcore part. That's our hardcore influences coming out. We didn't realize it was going to become a chorus into it. You know what I mean? So like now, since we already have, we got strumming, we've got palm muting, and we got a breakdown. What are we going to do next? We got to get out of there for a second. And, you know, we learned that sort of technique from listening to Blink-182 a lot. One of my favorite bands is Blink-182, and they're not afraid to just roll the same chords with no vocals. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that becomes the bridge. Their bridge becomes just a, a really soft version of what they're already doing with no vocals. Maybe Travis comes in with a, a snare roll or something like that. And it just gives the listener a break to want that third course. I think a break was needed here. I think this part was absolutely needed because we come back into what I'm calling the pre-chorus. And I love when this comes in. You're ready for it right there. I think that was uh, it was perfect. You couldn't have written that part any better that that came back in. Uh, it's basically the same as the other pre-choruses. We get that sub-boom again before chorus three. You know you do, you kill me well. You'd like it too. I mentioned this a moment ago, that screaming vocal part is super loud on the line Because You Kill Me in Chorus 3. And then the song ends on a double post-chorus. It's really interesting that you're calling this maybe the B chorus or whatever, but it it ends on this. Again, it's a double here, but unlike post-chorus 2, we get harmonies on this first part, and we get harmonies on the second part, On the second part, you get those screams again. You kill me well. And also, JT, on the second half here, there's another part that comes in. A great high lead lick panned off right. It comes in at the end of the song. And then, quite possibly, one of my favorite parts of the song is on the fade out. On the first chorus of the fade, uh, there's another lead lick that's panned off left. It's a harmony to that guitar panned off right. It's at the very end. You know what I'm talking about? Yep, I know exactly. This is the maiden part. Yes, yes. That that part was in the rest of the song before the producer got a hold of it. Meaning like that was part of the chorus. We eliminated my part and then put our other guitar player would play my part, which is just the regular part. And then we 
shifted it to the back so we could have something else come in a unique part for the third chorus because that's where we weren't we weren't quite there as as songwriters yet understanding dynamics and how you need things here you need things there and it needs to grow and build so that was a good seasoning by Sean you know he under, he understood all these parts are cool man but you guys are rocking 100% of the time with three guitars so it was it really was on him to kind of be like you don't need that it's cool but you don't need it let's shift it here and stuff like that and that's where that came in and there would have been a third part harmony on that but he cut it out because he he was very strict on three-part harmonies and we're like dude you're killing us that's why <laughs> one of the reasons we thought that is one of the reasons that we got signed because we're interesting you're killing us but then you know like you sit there and think about it and i'm like if we were to play this live, because there's no backing tracks back then or anything like that, you know what I mean? You're just playing the song. How am I singing that and playing that? And who is playing? You know, so it's like sometimes you got to be saved from yourself sure. every once in a while. So oh, we, yeah. just got, we just got a, uh, a two part harmony, but I'm happy that it's in there because it did just give you that little bit of ear candy to make you think. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. If you don't write songs or anything like that, you're just listening on melody and feel and like it does keep you going. And then you got a live fade out in it, which is bizarre. Well, I wanted to ask whose idea was a fade. Uh, we always wanted to do a fade. And this was our opportunity. In hindsight, I would not have picked our number one song that would talk <laughs> to us for 20 years to try this experiment. But we didn't know that. So if you know, if I was able to get in the DeLorean, instead of getting the almanac, I would say, cut that fade and end it hard. You need a hard stop at the end of that, which we do live anyway. But but yeah, it's it's just one of those things that was like we needed to be saved from ourselves. I think I think Sean, I think the producer liked it. It was interesting. It just kind of slow faded out. Mm -hmm. um, just not necessary. Just one of those things. It was like, let's do it. So you're, you're almost 20 years removed now. Are you still proud of the track? 100%. That's great. A lot of bands get caught up in what they would have done, mm -hmm. you know, because you've become a better songwriter or whatever. But like... This was a snapshot of who you were. Exactly. It was a snapshot of how green we were, about youthful exuberance, and about how us not knowing shit showed that you don't have to know shit. Mm -hmm. And that if you just follow the narrative you might need a little help all, along the way but you you got to go with your instincts and i think that that is one of the things one of the reasons that we fought so much while making this record the band got stronger than ever because we all had each other's backs and it was the first time in our career where it was an us versus them mentality versus the producer and you look back and like none of this stuff would be arguments now it just oh, right. wouldn't be you just be like well i i don't agree but I'll let you have this one. It you know, like you know how to pick your battles now, but back then you were like, "Nah, you're telling me my song's not good enough. You're telling me that these, <laughs> yeah. you're telling me that the lyrics that I haven't showed you yet aren't good enough." Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, so you don't, you just don't have the hindsight. And like, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. We we play it at every single show, of course, wholeheartedly with so much pride because 
I don't understand bands that don't love their biggest song. And that's so that's so foreign to me too. I'll never get it, that. Yes, it is it is so wild to think that you don't love what your fans love. Yes. You know what I mean? Like if you were to tell me that any other song was there was the absolute biggest song, I'd play that one too. You know, it's just <laughs> Ohio just happens to have this really odd story to it to where like like we didn't play it on our first tour. We put it track eight on our record. It's not that nobody believed in it, in our camp. We just thought that it was another song. We just thought that, you know, we already had Silver Bullet. We don't need anything else. I, I hear that so many times, and I'm so glad you brought up. I had it in my notes, and I forgot, JT. Thank you. You brought up, out of 11 tracks on the album, this was track eight. You usually don't bury the hit number eight on a record. <laughs> it, just goes to show, it just goes to show you didn't know. It was just another song. Yeah, and you know, I think that one of the smartest things that we've ever done as a band, and we did this really early, and I think that this is because we were all about 22 years old, 23, so we had a little bit of foresight not being an 18-year-old, you know, like we had a little bit of real-life stuff uh, under our belts. We, we were always fans first, and the second that people started reacting to that song, we went with it. Yeah, we rented a, a rehearsal space on our very first tour when people started talking about it on the internet because uh, it was on a like a sampler CD and a Taking Back Sunday CD, and people were like, "What is this song? I want to hear this song. Who is Hawthorne Heights?" We were like, "Hey, next off day, we got to get in the studio. We got to figure out how to play this song live, and we're playing it from this day forth." So on the day that our album came out, June twenty eighth, uh, two thousand four. We played the song for the first time at Ace's Basement in North Carolina. It was one week since our album came out uh, because I remember we got our first sales number that day. And I was like, it was really poetic. And uh, so we just always followed the fans since yeah. they liked it from that moment. We were like, we're going to play this thing. I don't it doesn't matter. You know, like we got to play to what they're reacting. We've always done that. We've always been able to like pivot if we're if we're seeing reactions and people are like, I really like that lyric. I really like that line. And like you said, this song, nothing repeats. We've been able to maintain cutting the second verse in half, changing up the arrangement of the second verse as one of the Hawthorne Heights signature songwriting devices, throwing in that extra harmony, holding stuff back, doubling the chorus with a scream, stuff like that, that has become our signature sound is very calculated on our end, because we're just trying to understand what the fans want from us. Because the fan, if you don't have the fans and you're not servicing the fans, you might as well be playing silent music. <laughs> you know, so I like agree. we just we've always thought that we've never really been one of those like we're the artists. We will tell you what to like. We're just not that kind of band, man. We grew up in a rental hall called the Knights of Columbus on Burkhardt Avenue in Dayton, Ohio. I grew up in a trailer in St. Mary's, West Virginia. This is funny because this is kind of pushes to you a little bit. Um, so I mentioned that I went to Warp Tour for the first time in 1998, saw all my favorite bands play, you guys included. The summer before that, I went on my first road trip, and the place that I went was Gainesville, Florida. Oh, wow. And I went, and I went to the Hardback Cafe uh -huh. because one of, one of my friends told me, you have to go there. And I spent a week of my life watching $3 punk shows at the Hardback <laughs> Cafe Growing up in a small town in a trailer in West Virginia, 
before the internet and having any access to all of this stuff, going to the hardback cafe and seeing like fun size going and seeing uh, the blacktop cadence. And I don't even think they played very many shows. I just happened to be there when they were playing a show. Yeah. Went, went to the purple porpoise and saw skiff dank for the first time. You know what I mean? I saw all this stuff and that summer is what made me become a, a real musician. I just started playing guitar two months before I took that trip. That's awesome. It's wild, man. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm steeped in what you guys do. I uh. absolutely love it. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, man, congratulations on all your continued success. And before we break here, what do you got for the listeners? What's coming up with, uh, with you or the band? Always. We're always writing. We're always recording. We're working on our Is for Lovers Festival. We're getting ready to release a new single that we haven't announced, but be on the lookout. You heard it on your podcast first. Awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, we're touring and just making moves and trying to create emo destinations for people 20 years later um, really that's <laughs> that's yeah. what we're trying to do you know what one, one last thing that i would like to touch on sure on the ohio is for lovers lyrics i'll wait for you but i can't wait forever or i won't wait forever so the only time in my life that i have ever cheated on a girlfriend was right before i started dating my wife Nikki, who I've talked about many, many times. And the funny thing about that is she's always yelling at me. She's like, will you write a nice song about me so your fans don't think that I'm like the worst person in the world? And it, it never works out. Sure. <laughs> but um, they don't want to hear the, the, the good stuff. Got to hear the dirt. Yeah, they don't want that stuff. They're not coming here for that, baby. But um, I told her, like, I knew that I was going to end the relationship that I was in. I, you know, it was a short term thing, you know, maybe a six month relationship. So it wasn't serious or anything like that. My girlfriend that I was getting ready to break up with just happened to be out of town for two weeks. And Nikki and I started talking online in the in the dawn of like web chat because she was away at college and I'm like talking to her and I'm explaining to her, I I'm going to break up with my girlfriend. You know that I have a girlfriend. I'm unhappy. I've liked you for a year. I want to pursue this but I cannot do it for two weeks. So her line was, I'll wait for you, but I, I won't wait forever. <laughs> so I, I saved that line for two years. That's awesome. And put that in there. And my, she doesn't even know that, by the way. I've never talked to her about any of these lyrics. Oh, wow. I never mention any of this stuff. I allow her because I don't want it to cloud what I'm doing for better or for worse. <laughs> I want it to be, I want it to remain anonymous. I'm sure she has heard all of this stuff and like listened to the songs and been like, I bet that's about this, or I bet that's about that. But I've never once told her, you realize that Ohio is for lovers is about that conversation we had because to her, that was not a groundbreaking conversation. Oh, to, yeah. me, it, to me, it was, Yeah, it was okay. You, you understand what I'm doing now. For her, she was probably just like, I just want him home. I'm being too hard. But she was she was definitely not going, I have just solidified our relationship for the next 20 years. But yeah. she did. And that's what that is about. And that that to me is why I will play it every day for the rest of my life if I can, because it, it still means a lot to me. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. Of course, man.
everybody, the song that you're hearing is the new Hawthorne Heights single, Lucerne Valley. It just came out and it's streaming everywhere, so go check it out. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with JT Woodruff, but don't go anywhere. We got lots more Chris to Make a podcast coming up right after a word from our sponsors. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Chris Makes a Podcast producer, Chris Fafalius here. You may have heard me talk about my band Punchline before. Maybe you already know us, or maybe you're hearing about us for the first time right now. It doesn't matter. No matter what your relationship with Punchline is, I will absolutely guarantee that you'll love our new podcast, A Band Called Punchline. Starting with our humble beginnings in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania in 1997, we're telling the hilarious, strange, and hopefully inspiring story of the 25-plus years of our band in the most honest way possible, podcast style. A Band Called Punchline is an audio documentary available now wherever you get your pods. So subscribe and let me and my friends share a wild, entertaining, unique, and wonderful tale of music and perseverance unlike any other that's still being written today. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is The Wandering Off, a band featuring Emily and Kyle Corner. Emily is on the vocals and Kyle is on the guitar. This song is awesome. You can find them online at thewanderingoff.com. Here's a snippet of their song. Hey there. Chris and Chris. So I know we've had a few of these stories, and Chris, you've talked about this with early Less Than Jake songs, but I think this might be the ultimate story of young songwriting instincts just resonating with people. You know, just going with <laughs> going with your gut and trusting yourself as a young songwriter, and the emotion really comes through, even if the songwriting part isn't fully developed yet, you know? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I'd like to think that these guys didn't know what the heck they were doing. And I think that, you know, JT even thinks they didn't. But there was a, a pretty deep breadth of talent here with these guys. There really was. And this isn't to knock my band, but my, my first man's record didn't sound like this. OK, they, they definitely had something going at the same time. They were very scattered in their ideas. They I use the example of, uh, you know, they were all little pups wanting to be fed at once at the same exact time. Get me in there. I want my part to be heard there's all this stuff going on and i even mentioned i think that sometimes the struggle and if they hadn't had uh been butting heads with producer sean o'keefe maybe we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this song 20 years later it's funny it's another thing i've heard you talk about is that butting heads with a producer or your first experience with a producer not knowing what you're getting into and being like what do you mean you don't like my song the way it is? This is my art. This is my song. That's basically what JT said to a Mm -hmm. T. And uh, it's just funny because then you work with a bunch of producers over the years and you're 20, 25 years into your career and you look back on it and you're like, oh, why did we think we knew everything? Why were we going to this producer in the first place? And I think that JT really uh, illustrated that pretty well in this conversation. Yeah. You know, as I've gotten older, I like to get into the mind uh, and the psyche of the producer in the sense of like, well, what do you mean you don't like this part? Or what do you mean, what do you hear in this part? How do you hear it differently? That intrigues me now. But man, when I was young, yeah, it's like, how dare you criticize it? This verse shouldn't be doubled. It's perfect the way it is. And Chris, I, I definitely got to talk about this. I've known JT and Hawthorne Heights forever. I've known JT so long. I think it was like, I brought this up so many times to him, but I think in like 1998 or 99, we played together in a backyard in Maryland with like his old band before Hawthorne Heights. Like we've known each other forever and uh, always been a down to earth, nice guy. I mean, they blew up and took us on tour. He had, you know, always says nice stuff about punchline, which, which we appreciate, but we've known them forever dude we just talked about this the other day we've been recording the punchline action which he referenced i was like wow he said that was one of the reasons they wanted to record with sean o'keefe which i thought yeah. that was really cool but uh during like the tour for that i got into an accident in our van so we didn't we didn't have our van and half of us rode with hawthorne heights and half of us rode with i think that was the bayside on that tour like they they're such good friends that they like let some of us ride with them on tour. You know, like I can't, I can't say enough nice things about JT and Hawthorne Heights as people. And I think that really came through in this episode with everything from just being honest about where they were at the time to talking about how they still appreciate the way the fans respond to this song now, like how much they still, still love it. I just think super humble guy and i just loved hearing him talk about this yeah for sure i love how he embraces the song that's why i said you know do you do you still still like the song he's like i love it you know yeah. and it, it's what the fan the the fans uh they have spoken uh yeah. you know they 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 love this track how could i turn my back on that and i know bands that have i've never done it i've always been like Every time I hit the stage and, and, you know, play whatever, Johnny Quest, it's like it's new to me because I'm feeding off the energy of the people that are in that building. So uh, I love that he embraces it. And why not? And yeah, I had mentioned I love the fact that this song really is all over the place. They all wanted to get their parts all over everything, and it ended up becoming their signature song. That's that's such such a cool story. There are things about this song which... 
hey, my band was all, most bands were doing it. I don't know if Less Than Jake was doing it, but we most definitely were. Things that were kind of of the time, but I still like. For example, you brought up the 808 drops. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> did you did you ever put 808 drops in Less Than Jake's songs? We did one, but it was just a joke. And and Roger put it in the part where none of, none of the other guys in the band wanted it. It's this song called, uh, what's the title of it? Harvey Wallbanger, I think, is the name of it. It was on an EP that we released some years ago. And uh, anyways, yeah, but but it was more of a joke where we were putting it. It wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> but ban- bands were using it on the regular back then. Dude, we, the, yeah, Action, the album that JT referenced here, we got 808 drops on there. I mean, we <laughs> we loved them. You know, I still, I, I don't know, I'm a fan of bass, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm not going to complain about that. I think JT's really funny too i think it's just sometimes like a dry sense of humor i've always thought he was really funny i thought it things that weren't necessarily even meant to be funny but he said that uh they never said the word chorus while writing the song like it was it wasn't like oh this is this part this is that part no the band came to him with the music and he he wrote the top line melody and lyrics over the music with no thought of like this is the chorus this is the whatever but chris i think that the because my heart is in Ohio mm-hmm. I think that is that is the song it's kind of like how when we once again when we talked about yellow card Ocean Avenue how that song starts with there's a place off Ocean Avenue yeah that that's is the it. hook that's the hook that's not the chorus yeah <laughs> but that's definitely the hook and even if that is the pre-chorus in this song the my heart is in Ohio part is the pre-chorus um I think I mean I guess you could argue about it, that a lot of the parts in this song are the chorus in a way if you're if you're saying it's the hook or the most catchy part but he, he said the whole song's a chorus which i i kind of <laughs> agree with you know <laughs> yeah no they it's because they didn't know they were just mm-hmm. trying to write the catchiest parts move on to the next part and make it just as catchy uh, uh or more catchy than the last part you heard so that's uh there's something about being green that is so genuine and and, and so cool yeah and they faded the song out. Yep. <laughs> you know, I, yep. I loved him talking about that too, because it's such an interesting choice. The fade out. I've always yeah. wondered, like you couldn't think of an ending and I'm not, believe me, I'm not talking <laughs> shit right now because we've done it in punchline songs. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, there, I feel like there's like classic Motown songs that fade out. It's just funny to think about the fact that we do that as people that write songs like, oh, just couldn't think of an ending. Let's just make the volume go go lower and lower until it's no longer there. It's just a funny thing. And they did that on their biggest song. Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely a fan of The Fade. And something else I'm a fan of, Chris, is all you listeners out there joining the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. If you don't have a Facebook page, make up a burner page. Make a fake page and join us. We'd love to have you in there. We have great conversations it's a lot of fun and if you can give me a follow on instagram at less than chris d i would appreciate it and i want to thank this week's guest jt woodruff for sitting in with us and we'll see you next week hey you do you have any plans this year <laughs> how's that going do you get 2020 well welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020 where myself benny goodman 
And my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.